You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist asks Micha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolokowski, and we are talking, darshaning about old movies. And we're going to have a hard time, I think, connecting these movies tonight. We've sort of had a little bit of a theme going, Yitzhak, like we've been, the last couple of weeks, I think, we've been trying to put stuff under some big rubric here. Um, but uh, these two films probably don't have much in common at all. But let's talk about them, because I think uh, they probably would stir people's interest. Uh, somewhat overlooked, neither of them, I think, uh, uh, are going to be in the... the the 100 best films of all time, films you have to see before you die. But I think films that, at least mine, at least the one I want to recommend, I think has a lot to recommend for it. And especially, I think, um, it gives us a chance to explore uh, a certain phenomena in, in, in filmmaking and perhaps in general in terms of the arts, especially the arts, whether it's television or 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 any sort of uh, type of our artistry where the public is is what is responsible for expanding the popularity and the wealth of the artist uh, where the people behind the star, the people who make the star, the people who are involved in the star, and especially the, the family behind the star. So um, the film I want to talk about is a 1981 film. Uh, that is called Raggedy Man. Uh, it stars Sissy Spacek. Uh, and that really tells you, I think, something right away. You know, in the old days, Yitzchok, if somebody in, let's say, she won the Academy Award in 1980, I believe, for Coal Miner's Daughter, playing Loretta Lynn. Um, but in let's go back even 10 years before that, or at least 15 years before that. No actress would probably been able to become a star or a leading lady with the name of Sissy Spacek. Um, I guess it's a, a, a Slavic name. Um, you, right? Judy Garland, she was gum. Uh, forgot what her first name was, right? But yeah, Judy Garland, as Georgie Jessel came up with this name for her. Uh, Bernie Schwartz, of course, Tony Curtis. Uh, I don't know what Tab Hunter's real name is, but the fact that she could still be called the uh, Sissy, which is probably what her uh, name that she had uh, that her siblings gave her, and a name like Spacek, yeah, Sissy Spacek, why not? There's an alliteration to it. We're, we're entering a different era in Hollywood. Like, yeah, I guess a little after that is when Pat Sajak had, had, he, he had to take, I think, uh, a D out of his name or something. So, so people should be able to see it and they shouldn't be turned off by the Slavic aspect. Today, I can't, again, obviously, we've, way, we've gone way past. That ship has sailed uh, a long time ago. But, um, you know, and, and another thing about Sissy, of course, is that she wasn't any, any classic beauty at all. She's really someone who, um, you know, frail, freckled, uh, not in any way buxom or, or the classic sense of beauty. In fact, uh, a film that where she made uh, her, I guess her debut, I believe, was in Terrence Malick's Badlands, where she is, where she and Martin Sheen play these two runaways that are going around uh, killing people, which is based, I think, on an actual, uh, an actual case of 
of, of these two teenagers that went around and shot people up. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about it. Uh, I think the song Nebraska is based on that as well. So, um, you know, it was in actually in that Terrence Malick film. By the way, Martin Sheen, of course, is Estevez. You have Ramon, Ramon Antonio Gerald Estevez, born in Dayton. Uh, his mother was Irish, Martin Sheen, uh, Mary Ann, uh, an Irish immigrant, and Francisco Estevez. So obviously, you know, Martin Sheen, uh, you know, as an actor, they didn't think he could, he, could, he could get by calling himself Ramon Estevez when he wanted to take, you know, non-Hispanic uh, parts or non-Latino parts. Well, um, so he took the name Sheen to honor Bishop Pope and Sheen, who was a very popular television uh, television preacher yes and and it's interesting of course martin of course has one son uh charlie who's sort of infamous for all his hijinks and his other son of course is emilio uh, who decided to stick with his real (laughs) stick with his real name so to speak but anyway so here you have even in badlands terrence mavick's film you have martin sheen you know I'm a Hollywood, I'm going to be a Hollywood star and Sissy Spacek uh, with the Spacek name. And they play these teenagers who, of course, are on this um, uh, on this journey to no good. Of course, they're going around shooting people. And and Sissy from that film, people saw that she had a certain unusual talent playing sort of an oddball character that had a certain, if not sensuality, but a certain sort of power and a certain sort of control. And her film that I think next really brought her to the public attention as a very major force was playing, you know, opposite a a very um, impressive Hollywood actress, Piper Laurie, who plays her mother. And she, of course, is the lead in the film Carrie, which is, I think, the probably one of the first uh, Stephen King adaptations. And of course, this was a film that was uh, directed by Brian De Palma. And in this film, Carrie, she plays uh, you know, a, a bullied girl who develops psychokinetic powers that, of course, end up uh, really uh, going out of control and being so destructive, very tied up to the fact that she was experiencing her first menstrual period and other things like that, uh, that somehow her powers kick in. And it's, it's a really, of course, a metaphor about bullying and female empowerment. Um, and again, Sissy played sort of like a little offbeat type of character who sort of like comes within her own and is able to get revenge on all the bullies uh, but it, it was clear Hollywood saw something in her when they cast her as, you know, in this in this major biopic with opposite Tommy Lee Jones in Coal Miner's Daughter. And here she was, I guess, I, I, I guess she was in her mid-20s or so when she, in Badlands, she, uh, which was set in Nebraska, I guess, or set in some in South Dakota and some of these places, um, uh, the production designer for the film was a fellow by the name of... James Fisk. James Fisk, Jim Fisk was the production designer. And they fell in love on the set. They got married about a year later, and they're still happily married. Fisk was had been a production designer for many, many important films. Um, and and, and, and he might have been nominated for an Oscar in that in that category. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think he was. Um, but after they got married. Um, and after the success of Coal Miner's Daughter, 
Fisk wanted to promote his wife in a film that really highlighted her in the best possible way. And that's the film Raggedy Man. And she plays a divorced woman uh, living in Texas, rural Texas, in a city called Gregory, Texas, in the year 1944. And I have... And though this film was made only, it was made 40 years after the time it's supposed to be happening, it, it does a, a, an incredible job. Uh, you know, I think as, as good as Bogdanovich did in Paper Moon, which we praised, this film does as, as solid of a job, maybe even better, because it's filmed in luscious color of recreating that period down to again obviously the cars is, is, is an easy thing the buses the um the general stores the types of advertisements the radio and the songs that were playing there uh and especially it it it, it, it zeroes in on the unusual way the war of world war ii was affecting people in these rural places um sissy plays um um, a character by the name of as Nita, and Nita is this. She's a telephone operator in this small town, which I guess she represents the telephone company in that area. She's able to live in the telephone company's building along with her two sons, um, and. It's there that anyone who needs a telephone or needs to have a call, it's there that calls come in telling people in the area that their child has died in the war or might be coming home wounded. And she has has hours that are basically immutable. In other words, she has to be ready all the time. So whenever a call comes in, she's got to be ready to take the call. Um, and she wears this you know, sort of uh, uh, outfit where she has the, uh, you know, her ears inside, I guess we would call them like, like old-fashioned earbuds and connected to a little microphone that she has in order to be able to speak into it. And she has to do all the connecting. And she's, she never has a chance to sleep normally. She always has to be ready. And her, her children are also, in a way, not able to be raised in, in, in a normal fashion because their mother is constantly, can only have a life when the phone isn't ringing. And she has to answer every call and facilitate it when any times people are coming in. And that itself is, was, is, is an interesting thing you might not know about, about uh, the, what uh, the types of occupations people had and also the film underscores that because it was wartime this was considered an essential position that nobody could move from you had you you weren't able to actually your your wages were frozen because of the war and it was a situation where because calls are going to come in on any time she couldn't ask for a more normal uh, arrangement and because of the size of the city, they couldn't really afford people to be coming. So it, that itself was an interesting phenomena. The, when I did a little research on the film, I, I realized, discovered that the screenplay of the film was, was, ha, had been kicking around 
um, William D. Whitliffe, who was a screenwriter who seems to have uh, written quite a few films, been involved in, in quite a bit of, of films uh, that he was involved in, many of them with a sort of a Southern or Texas type of uh, 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 connection, was actually wrote a screenplay in um, 1975 that was pretty much a, uh, a dramatization of his youth, where he had actually been one of the divorced woman's children living in that town, Gregory, Texas. And his mother had been the telephone operator. So he wrote a, uh, a, a, a novel, well, a screenplay, where she divorced from her husband, ends up you know, getting involved with a young sailor who is out on a furlough coming out of Corpus Christi or wherever they were based in Texas in that area. And she is like a pariah in the town because she's considered, she's considered having, having had a checkered past because she's divorced. Um, and it seems like Whitliff uh, tried to peddle this screenplay around and there was talk of Sally Field and other types of actresses doing it. And then they came, he came up with an idea of taking his screenplay to a woman called Mary Clark, who, who actually turned the screenplay into a novel. It wasn't a much of a novel, only 179 pages, but it was able to gain a, quite a, a little bit of following, especially as sort of a young adult novel. Because in a way, it's, it's a little bit of the story of a coming of age of the children and how they're observing what's going on with their mother and how, how they, if they ever process uh, their, their father's the divorce that the mother, that happened to the mother. In fact, they didn't know what was going on with the mother, with the father. That's one of the big spoil, the secrets of, of the film is whatever happened to her husband who divorced her, who had been a philanderer and that she wanted a divorce because she has not even heard from him in four years and that's part of what might be you know a big secret about what might be really going on uh and uh when the film was finally made um fisk saw it as a perfect opportunity uh to feature sissy and he really in a way is able through close-ups of her freckles and and how she was to really you know to really capture the idea that this is a real human being and a human being that is is trapped in the 1944 um, uh, box of judging a woman who's divorced that there's obviously something wrong with her uh, as a woman who doesn't have a husband who's fighting in the war um, as someone who um, has no right to desire anything better than where she is. And also a woman who, because of her availability, uh, now becomes prey for all the uh, uh, sort of assorted weird people that were rejected and weren't able to go to war who still populate uh, the area. Uh, and one of the creeps, I don't know, I think they're, I think they're supposed to be brothers, um, is played by William Sanderson, who I know you know as Larry from the the New Heart series, and of course he has his two brothers, Daryl and Daryl, and he's pretty. He's Sanderson 
uh, played, uh, he always uh, has sort of like a niche role playing uh, a sort of a strange, menacing or somewhat um, you know, disabled type of person. Uh, that's just the look that he has. And in this film, he is a very menacing person indeed, because he and his brother, who are quite similar, have their sights on this divorcee, and they want to be able to do, you know, to somehow insinuate themselves towards her and to do much more than date her. Now, she's a very, she plays the role very smartly. Uh, she, she pushes them off. But when this young sailor, played by Eric Roberts, uh, who later was in many, many films and maybe even earlier playing total creeps, uh, you know, Eric Roberts probably, I don't know if he's in films anymore, but of course he was in Star 80 and other films where he played, you know, really bad, you know, really toxic masculinity. In this film, he plays a very, uh, a jilted sailor who actually comes to the, uh, to the telephone station in order to tell his sweetheart in Oklahoma that he's on the way back from the base and hopefully he can maybe meet her and maybe they can get married before he gets shipped off somewhere. Um, Turns out, of course, that he discovers that she has married someone else and it turns out that his furlough is being spent in this town of Gregory, where an attraction ensues between Robert's character um, and his name is Teddy, who wears like a sailor outfit most of the film, and uh, the sissy's character. And it's a very tender love story. It isn't what you have in later Hollywood films where they're just ripping each other's clothes off. It's very much a, um, uh, they are sort of like, they're tzniastic sort of, around each other, although, of course, they do end up consummating sort of the relationship in some way. But it's really done, I think, in a, uh, in a way that is old-fashioned. The two uh, children, one of the, the older boy is played, and this was the uh, introductory role in film of Henry Thomas, who, of course, I don't think he had a career as a child actor, but I think if he had he only done this one film, the one he did after this, he would have already had a place in Hollywood history forever. And he played Elliot in E.T. I don't think he ever, you know, he, he's been in another films and he was, of course, Legends of the Fall and many other films playing a more adult role. And I think he's been he's been in a number of, of, of television films as an adult. Uh, but this was his first film uh, playing uh, the younger, the older boy. And just like an E.T., and I think this might have been what Spielberg saw when he saw Raggedy Man in order to cast him, that he is also uh, w- upset that his father isn't around. And he sort of, in a way, uh, screams at his mother uh, for driving the father away in, in, in dialogue, which is very similar to the dialogue in E.T., which... Is, has already been analyzed as Spiel as a surrogate for Spielberg's own feelings about his father leaving his mother, uh, Leia Spielberg. So um, you know, the you know, the film has a significance as being Henry Thomas's uh, first film. But once again, I, I really believe the film is able 
in such loving tones to really bring out the spirit, the 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 ethereal beauty, and the the character of sis of of the Nita of uh, Nita's character. She is really able to show strength, an understanding, um, and when she's threatened, um, you can see real fear. You can see real emotion. Um, and I think Roger Ebert, when the film came out, talked about the gift that Sissy Spacek is, that she is such a gifted actress. I don't think she ever really, uh, um, although she won the Oscar, she never has been afforded the type of accolades that have been reserved you know, to, for Meryl Streep uh, and others. But I think this film uh, really shows her as a, as a real human being struggling pushing forward and I, I i i can't help but imagine how her husband did his utmost to posit her in a way that she would shine the most he made another film featuring her but i don't know if the film was as as successful and i think it's really great when i think about how long their relationship has lasted I mean, they got they got married in '75. They've been married for 45, over 45 years. Seemingly a happy marriage. I don't think we hear about anything. And isn't it great that they could point to this film as the ultimate collaboration, where uh, as something that can I mean that could last. I mean that's something to give over as a to the Einaglach. You see what mom and dad did together, and I think it's a film that still has a strong message, a message of determination, a message of not being judgmental. And by the way, when um, the boys are being bullied and, and being pushed around by Sanderson and his brother, um, it's the Hispanic uh, owner of the cantina who comes to their rescue. So it does have the requisite um, rooting for the underdog. Again, there is a sort of a, you find out that the, the father is not as bad as you think, um, and there, which, uh, again, I could have done without all that stuff about discovering the real secret of what happened to the father. I think just the love story itself is very cute. Um, it's not just rom-com cute. It also really propels you backwards in time to a, a 1944 midway um the period where people would you know spend the afternoon in a hot texas day in the movie theater and although the kids perhaps could have been you know <laughs> i don't know if they acted on the level of freddie bartholomew um and shirley temple i think they do a, a an adequate enough a job to really suggest what it's like to grow up in such abject poverty while the country was in a way paralyzed and fascinated by war as these boys are. Uh, they end up eventually escaping the town and going out on this bus and leaving. Uh, and, you know, she's able to just have the courage to leave her job. It's, but that comes after a terribly harrowing experience that occurs. But I think it's really worthwhile. And I think just for, for Sissy itself is worth the price of admission. I think you know when we it's like when we talk about you know these collaborations. I think so so often in Hollywood, what you whether it was 
whether it was stage mothers who tried to dominate their children uh, that occurred often, or husbands that uh, really uh, directors that sort of like pushed their wives into vehicles that were totally uh, not right for them or producers. Um, I, I think, again, this is the exception that might prove the rule. Um, there is, you know, Doris Day was for many years, um, uh, you know, she was a major, major talent in terms of being a singing star. We've talked about her before. And when she, in the late 40s, uh, started getting more star vehicles, and in the 50s, she was probably one of the most popular uh, actresses and singers. You know, she was like, a, a, you know, in a way of a double threat, at least. She wasn't a dancer, but she could sing and dance. Uh, she could sing and act. Um, and her husband, a Jewish guy called Marty Melcher, you know, took over her career and really put her in a bunch of really, you know, really weird types of films where, uh, you know, um, Midnight Lace and other films, Julie, these were films where she was uh, being abused or being uh, a wife in trouble. And again, maybe that's what they thought Hollywood needed, but you can see that these were bad choices that she made. And, 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 and it was discovered later in the 1970s that Melcher had, um, had, had robbed her blind, uh, had, been, had, had done a number of terrible business deals, but also had written contracts in a way that he was able to make out like a bandit. And she, as, as popular as she was, as one of Hollywood's not number one box office draws, you know, it was unfortunate the way people abused uh, and took advantage of, of, of the stark material. And again, that's sort of like the Teva of the Bria, unfortunately, that, you know, but people, it's, 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 it's a melodramatic trope, but unfortunately it's based on the truth. Um, it's like, I know, you know, we talk about family issues, you know, where uh, here we, I know you want to highlight a film um, that in some ways is interesting because it was made by the older brother of a director who's considered one of Hollywood's greatest screenwriters and directors. We've talked about him here, uh, either on when we used to do our movie picks after To Stir or since The Projectionist. And that, of course, is the great, really, European emigre uh, Billy Wilder. W. Lee Wilder. W. Lee Wilder. So uh, he's Billy's older brother. Billy and he were did not get along, as far as I understand. They, uh, but um, but in a way, I guess it might be worthwhile to look at some of Billy's older brother's films, especially they sort of run up your alley in a certain way. And and this movie was was a, a, a collaboration of a father and a son because uh, W. Lee Wilder was the director and his son uh, Miles was the screenwriter one of the screenwriters i don't know why they needed two screenwriters for a movie that's a little um, just a little over an hour it's an hour and 10 minutes long and the only reason i'm picking it is because i'm here uh i'm i'm out uh in 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 lancaster county pennsylvania for work uh here you can hear my kids in the background and it happens that thursday night uh, a fellow who goes by the stage named Mr. Lobo, he actually has his studio not too far from where we're staying. And I'm my my assignment here is uh, today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Today's Tuesday. 
and Thursday night, uh, I don't know when this will be out, maybe t tomorrow or Thursday, uh, this, this Mr. Lobo is actually showing this movie, which has been a favorite of mine since I'm a, a small child, uh, I guess because it's so readily available because it was in the public domain. I think it's been in the public domain as we've, we've discussed a lot of these you know, issues of the movies falling into public domain or always being in, you know, never, never even having a proper copyright or something like that. But uh, this one, it, it's, it, I don't think it's one that they really cared very much to keep. Uh, so it, it, it uh, certainly went into public domain as I think a lot of uh, this, this uh, Wilder's movies. I know he made a few others, but this one was uh, also special because it had someone who became a little bit more famous later in, um, you know, replacing uh, Stephen Hill in Mission Impossible was, was Peter Graves. Um, you know, obviously his, his brother, uh, James Arness, maybe was more famous in Gunsmoke. He was also in, in The Thing, which was probably uh, one of the, the greatest of the uh, science fiction films of the 50s. And here... Uh, okay, let's, you know, let me just... Let, let me just stop you there, Yitzhak. I mean, James Arness is in the thing, right? But he's covered by quite a bit of right. makeup, right? He's the monster in the thing, right? He right. He, he, thing. he does. He, he is the thing itself. He's not like the. He's not the the scientist. Although, or, although he was he was in another really more considered highbrow science fiction movie of the time was them, which came out that same year in 1954. Uh, and, and he was the, he was a, he was a police officer in them, and also did did probably a better job than his brother uh, in this one. And also well, you know, Peter Graves and James Arness, I think, is another example of changing your name. I think Arness was actually his real name, I believe. Or, so. or Ness, yeah. They they both kind of it was it, it was A U R N E S S. Right. And, and a, some reason is so for some some reason his little brother. His little brother didn't want to have that 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 European aura around him, so he becomes Graves. Um, uh, Peter uh, Peter Graves was also in a film that I recommended a number of months ago. You might remember, as as Peter Graves showed in in, in the other classic, uh, besides uh, Mission Impossible, he was, uh, I believe, in the airplane. He plays he he and uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar uh, play the pilots. In an airplane uh, that 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 you know that Abram Zucker uh, laugh extravaganza. So um, yeah. so that is something which I think um, that's I think something that uh, uh, you can also see Peter Graves in. But in this film, Killer from Space, Peter Graves is the scientist hero, right? Who uh, who who claims that? Uh, no, he's, he's actually. Well, he, uh, he, he, he seems that he dies in the beginning of the movie. Like the the movie begins as a lot of these movies begin with it with the test of an atom bomb, and uh, and the plane they lose control of the plane. He's in the plane. He's a scientist studying the the effects of the radiation of the atom bomb, and it goes down in the in the plane. So it's 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 assumed that he's dead. And then, uh, and then he comes back, and he and he's there, uh, you know. Uh, he's he's alive and well. The only thing is, he has a, a huge scar across his chest uh, that was, you know, uh, 
over it seemed like he had some kind of open heart surgery and nobody knows where this you know he's examined by a doctor nobody knows where this where this scar came from or even how he survived to the uh the crash in the middle of, of a mushroom cloud and uh so then he keeps having these flashbacks where he sees while he's driving or he can't sleep and he sees these big eyes in front of you know superimposed on the on the film he hallucinates these these big eyes uh and it, and it frightens him and then he he undergoes hypnosis with the uh you know the truth serum and he and he tells this whole story which really you know this is well before the whole um you know in in alien abductions it was before the the alien abduction you know genre which i think the first like official alien abduction that's recognized didn't happen until i think 61 or 62 was betty and barney hill uh was sometime in the 1960s so this was you know a, a decade before that and yet it has a lot of those tropes especially you know aliens with big eyes even though they're a little different than the gray aliens that they're presented i always thought they were ping pong balls i actually read that the uh the makeup artist cut off the bottom of an egg of egg cartons plastic egg cartons to make the effects of the of the large eyes and uh and the thing that i always enjoyed as a kid was that you know when they threw peter graves into, <laughs> i remember somebody it, said about this film that they all look like marty feldman <laughs> basically the aliens are basically basically it's basically a planet of marty feldman's who are uh their eyes their eyes go everywhere yeah um, and also the way they make the alien language is just by playing the playing the dialogue backwards and then, so that's how they they make the, the alien language but then they they throw I, peter graves into this uh this cage all of this is filmed in Bronson Canyon, Bronson Cave, which they've you know filmed dozens and dozens of movies, and probably for over a hundred years they've been using that that site. In fact, um, there's a fellow James Ralph who has a YouTube channel. He just made a, a, a YouTube video about the past few weeks about uh, all the different you know films that were filmed in, in Bronson Cave. Uh, you know, you, you talk. You know that this is one of the movies that people say it's so bad it's good, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is one of these movies that people say is. Uh, again, we talk about. Let's talk about you know, uh, you know the the director because we our segue to this was Wilder. I think probably the most inventive thing he does in the film is um, the credit scene, right? Where you actually have the. It starts with the mushroom cloud, and the credits rise out of the mushroom cloud. Right. Right. So I don't the, know if that was the title is kind of a non sequitur because you don't actually see these these aliens kill anybody. Mm. Well, yeah. I, well, I guess you have to go again. Everything is from yeah, everything is everything is from space, and it seems like Wilder like made a number of these schlocky uh, films, and you know, I guess you know it was uh, you know, they they probably didn't cost that much to make, and. Um, it sounds like uh, you know he. he I, I guess he probably told his, his his brother, big brother Billy. Okay, you can make all these message films like Ace in the Hole and and the Apartment and the Fortune Cookie and all these films that you're trying to make a message. You know, I'm going to grind out these 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 either these pot boilers or these science fiction stuff, and I'll make off like a bandit. Yeah, and yeah, uh, 
they don't cost that much. I, that that so when the part that I always enjoyed as a kid was they threw them into the cage and there were these giant bugs and lizards and you know there was tegu lizards and collared lizards and cockroaches and and the grasshoppers uh, all you know close up to look like uh, they were giant monsters and that was that was always fun to see. So, well, you know, he made a movie the year before with uh, was called Phantom from Space. So an invisible yeah. alien, yeah. Yes, yeah. And that James C.A. was in that film, and he's also in this film too. So, you know, I, I guess when we talk about, you know, you know, if you say a father and son screenwriter, um, brothers, I, I, uh, it makes sense that we should sort of, you know, look for, you know, if one if one person in the family gets into it, uh, the others should as well. Um, I don't know if it always ends up as a as, as a great um uh, recipe for for success um you know again you we can go as far as the Gershwin brothers right I mean, you have you know you have lyrics and music from you know Ira you know and his and, and his and his Ira and George Gershwin right George writing the music Ira writing the lyrics um the son the screenplay um I know you mentioned before we started recording, you thought there might have been um, there might have been some other uh, pretty decent uh, directors and girlfriends' wives uh, films. You mentioned the two Chaplin classics. One of them, I think he probably I don't know if he was as if they were if they were dating yet, but I, I, I think Charlie always, as we talked about uh, in, in an episode a little while ago, Charlie was always you know all over you know his his leads, and some of them, of course, were underage. But Paulette Goddard was, uh, as you mentioned, were, were in two of Char- Chaplin's films, right? Right, and and she's generally considered to be his third wife even though there's there's no record that they ever were actually married and he, he definitely highlighted her uh, wonderfully in um in uh in, in modern times and then of course again in uh the great dictator uh where i i think she again she was uh as you said i think her dad was jewish and she plays of course a jewish character yeah i like think Char- she grew up in great neck actually yeah, uh, she obviously had a, a connection to Jews. She actually very similar. Paulette Goddard actually is. Uh, if you ever seen my daughter, uh, who lives in Frederick, Maryland, there's a pretty strong similarity in facial uh, look between Paulette Goddard and my daughter. So I I always have an affinity uh, for her. Again, she never really, I guess she never really became this great Hollywood starlet. But Chaplin, you know, tried to do what he could for her in terms of, I guess, highlighting her in the best possible way. Um, but and, and, and it's something that you really expect. Of course, Vincent Minnelli and Judy Garland, whether all those choices were the best choices or not, I'm not sure. But whether it was, um, whether it was Meet Me in St. Louis, The Harvey Girls, uh, uh, other films where Minnelli uh, took lead, you know, that was important for him to feature uh, Judy Garland the best possible way. Uh, by the time A Star is Born, Minnelli had divorced Judy Garland, uh, or, and or they were divorced from each other. And that was actually uh, Sid Luft that was involved with being sort of the producer of what many people think is, is, is Garland's greatest film, uh, A Star is Born. Talk about major talented people. Um, there's a sense of entitlement that they have. And I don't know, on one hand, you might have Yitzchak, the, the, the unscrupulous you know, 
producer who tries to just, or a parent who tries to, to you know, a la Britney Spears's uh, dad or whatever. But I think many times the actor themselves, the actor themselves, is sometimes so unbridled and some, such a force. It's very hard to actually uh, to have this type of commonality, this type of continuity, this type of working together. Um, you know, obviously, celebrity goes to your head, but also there's there's a certain um, I don't know if you would call it an imbalance, but there's a certain sort of madness that really goes along sometimes with being a great actor. Um, uh, again, you have to be able to to mimic and create yourself as somebody else. It's not that easy to just slip back into into normalcy. Uh, it doesn't work so easily. You know, I know that uh, Natalie Wood, I know, uh, also struggled with this often. You know, she, of course, was married twice, I think, to Robert Wagner. And the idea of, of just, well, I'm a normal person too. But for for many people, that gift and their talent and especially the allure of celebrity and what it what it's supposed to be you start believing your own press you 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 think of yourself greater than you are i think that that might be the reason so many of of these collaborations you know we hear about oh they met on they met on the set and they got married and they worked together a lot of times you know these things unravel um and i think they do mostly not just because Hollywood is trafe and Tome and and this is a, a welcome tuma. I think it's I, I I think it really bespeaks the difficulty of of harnessing a tornado. I mean it, when you look it's like we do podcasts, but we know the difference between being able to be glib and being a decent conversationalist and being able to bring someone to tears by reading lines. You know what I'm saying? There's, 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 there's something about that gift that maybe only works when you're somewhat a little bit off. It, it doesn't really, like you, maybe you don't have it if it's, you know, if you could, you know, part of it is sort of being a little bit beyond and, and, and not a person that can just deal normally with the usual politeness of what it takes to be a human being and getting along together. Go beyond this behind the scenes and look at all the shattered marriages and the shattered collaborations. I think it can act as somewhat, it's like as a sort of a little bit of a, a morality of message about what it takes to collaborate and what are the key important uh, parts of, of life. Obviously um, a a stable, loving relationship uh, does much more than, you know, setting the world on fire with some sort of, you know, some sort of the newest action flick or the newest drama or soap opera, having that, but you know, what a gift it is when you're able to, uh, to be able to have elements of both. So, Yitzchak, on that note, I know that uh, let's hope that we can uh, look forward to only positive collaborations between ourselves. Obviously, that balance, you know, our families. Let's let's make a shout out for our executive producers over here. Okay.
that's why I'm muting so much because I have my whole family here. Yeah, but but let's let's well let, let's give a shout out to your executive producer Chava and my executive producer Deborah, you know, who allow us to get together and collaborate in this way. We we wouldn't be able to do it without you. That's for sure. All right, watch your step on the way out. Enjoy. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.